Let's do this, yeah? Rock Here we go. This is Silicon Reel, the video podcast dedicated to the people of the London technology startup scene. I am Brian Rose. I also host London Reel, which is a similar trialogue format with uh, guests like UFC Dan Hardy. We've had the four-hour workweek Tim Ferriss. Uh, we had futurist Jason Silva and even drug smuggler Howard Marks have all been in that chair, stuff. So uh, be careful. Um, my co-host today is Mr. Bryce Keen, who is the founder and director of Albion Drive. He is also a member and co-founder of the Three Beards. And if you don't know who they are, you haven't been paying attention for the last 11 episodes. Beards are back, baby. I'm They're back. back with a vengeance. Um, the Beards run, among other things, the weekly Silicon Drinkabout, which is an event in Shoreditch every Friday, which I'm pretty much always at. It's um, a lot of fun. You don't have to reserve. It doesn't cost money. You just come and hang out with people that are involved in the tech scene, people that want to get involved, people that want to look at people who are involved. Um, everyone's welcome, right? Uh, indeed. Indeed. There's a lot of looking. Yeah, there's a lot of looking. It was fun. Um, <laughs> that does the sense. Yeah, that mean? I don't know. It's not, it's a not a lot of looking. Everybody is very friendly and looks at their feet. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> Anyways, come check us out. We'll be there this Friday, every Friday. You also run uh, the events Digital Sizzle, mm -hmm. which is quarterly. Don't pitch me, bro, which is monthly. And you have a new one coming up called Chew the Fat. Chew the Fat on Monday, evening fireside chat with a high-profile VC or entrepreneur. Uh, kicking off Monday the 16th. Um, just around the corner in Marsat. And we'll be moving on from there. An intimate chat. It sounds a bit like our format. Well, it is, it is, but we're, um, but, uh, we're having Ben Southworth return to the stage, original co-founder of The Beards, to interview now number, ex number 10, Downing Street. Uh, he will be uh, kicking off with Rohan Silva, David, the Prime Minister, David Cameron's special advisor on tech, will be Fantastic. his first guest. So he's basically grilling his old boss, which I think is going to be a glorious Payback. way to kick it off. Yeah. Payback is a bitch, as they say. Exactly. Um, awesome. We're looking forward to that. Um, definitely. I just love everything you guys do, and, and I'm glad you're a part of this. And I'm glad you're back. It's good to be back. Thanks it's for having me It's been like a month or so. So um, anyways, there you go. Our guest today is Mr. Steph, wait for it, Levinovsky. Lewandowski. Lewandowski. Pretty okay. good. A -A AKA Steph the Hacker, which works for me. I like that. Um, who is a designer, a software developer, a startup person. I believe your work focuses on playful approaches to technology and its cultural, social, and political applications. Is that about right? Yeah, hacking for sure. Okay, hacking for sure. You are a <laughs> general badass. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. You Some are the, uh, the co-founder and hacker at Makeshift, where you are building a, a series of web mobile tech products aimed at giving a leg up to the little guy. And your motto is create something every day. I like that. That's good. Welcome we can to, talk about that. Yeah, we should. Welcome to Silicon Reel. Thank you for having me. Dude, thank, uh, thanks so much for being here. You know, it's weird because we've had all of these people. This is episode 12. Mm -hmm. You know, we've had uh, VC guys. We've had CEOs of this company, that company. And Bryce has been like, you got to get Steph the Hacker on. You got to get Steph the Hacker. And I actually thought that was your name <laughs> for, for a Changed while. Changed my name by Depot at some point. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and you know, <laughs> before we started the show, we were talking earlier about that word hacker. And, and it, it's, you know, I think it comes even from that Angelie Jolie movie like 20 years ago. Was it called Hacker? That's amazing. If you watch it now, by the uh, way, now. so funny. If you go back and watch Look it, back they're at like the screens, hacking. what they were actually doing the, on the screen, the green screen, and they're like, <laughs> and is Johnny like, Lee Miller in that? Yes, movie? yeah, before they were married or something. Okay. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, like, I, you know, and, and now there are hackathons, which I know the Three Beards, you we, know, sponsor, and these are regular events. But I mean, to a guy like me who's new to this whole scene, I don't know what this term hacker means, and I think the general public is it feels a little bit weird about it, as in they think, what do they think of? I don't know, WikiLeaks? Do they think of anonymous? I'm not quite sure, and so. I just 
I wanted you to talk about what, what this word means to you and, and what's it like when you tell your parents, friends, that, you, that, that if that's what you are. My son is stuff the hacker. Um, you, know, you know what? He's over, on the YouTube now. That happens. Uh, you go out with your parents and over dinner you explain to uh, you know, their friends that, yeah, I'm a hacker. And then you look at their face. And then you, you, if you, just by looking at their face, you know whether they've heard the term before. And I think a lot okay. of people have that reaction. Um, a hacker, it sounds like a really, really bad thing, right? Um, yeah, it, kind of. There's been a lot in the press recently um, about uh, hacking in the newspaper industry and uh, there's all this stuff about oh, really? the NSA hacking. Yeah. Um, hacking yeah. in, in those uh, areas is like, well, that's def definitely a bad thing, right? If you've got personal data and someone breaks in and steals it, mm -hmm. that's, that's bad. Um, yeah. But the thing is that the, the origins of the word uh, actually go back to a much more positive era. Um, back, uh, back when people were first experimenting with computers, um, they used to just call themselves hackers. They were playing around, they were making, and it was um, a word that kind of meant creatively inventing things with technology. Okay. Um, Do we know where that term, where the name came from? It's probably like a tech name. Who knows where it came from? I have from. looked into this. It's a bit um, mysterious. Um, it's quite an old, old word. Um, it used to mean something to do with riding, so uh, you'd hack across the countryside. Mm, okay. um, and I think it, it's, it's back to uh, getting through something quickly. That's what it really means. So hack, okay. as in you've got a big knife and you're going through the jungle or you're going through something in a, in a fast pace. So if you're riding across the countryside, you're hacking across it, perhaps. So I think that the, the speed has always been part of the, the meaning of the word. Mm. But if you look at what, what people think about nowadays in terms of a hacker, like the kind of general populace, assume that the, the word means someone who breaks into computer systems all the time. Yeah. But actually, the way I describe myself and the way other people have described me, and this is a word that's been given to me rather than me choosing it for myself, yeah. um, is a kind of creative technologist, uh, using technology in a creative, rapid way. And actually, if you go back um, after the term was first coined, um, in that period, there was a battle between the word cracker and hacker. Hmm. And cracker, oh, cracker okay. a cracker is someone who does all the illegal stuff, and a hacker is just someone who enjoys playing with, with tech. Mm. Um, oh, you said cracker, and in America, a cracker is like an old white man racist dude. Oh. So in the South, you get called a cracker. It's oh, like really? it's a fight. Yeah. It's like, that, you cracker? You know, like a Kentucky fried cracker. I get the other thing, like cracking a safe is more yeah, where it came from. Right? Okay. But cracking's an old word, right? That was kind of like an 80s or 90s word? Yeah. Um, I think the, obviously words change over time, right? Yeah. You, can, you can never have a static uh, term. Uh, it always depends on the kind of, the, the, uh, uh, the culture around it. Yeah. Um, the interesting thing that's been happening recently that I've noticed is that um, there was kind of a resurgence of interest in doing things quickly with technology, and that's that's been something that I've become part of. Um, for a long time, the the way that software was made and designed um, was based on this kind of waterfall model of. of um, uh, running a project, so you'd at the beginning you'd have a client, okay, and they'd have a, a need, and then you'd get some consultants to work out what you should do about the need, uh -huh. and they'd yeah. write a big document, uh, and then that would be presented to a board, and then then someone would go, okay, right, great, uh, now we'll get someone to um, produce a full plan of how this project is going to be made with all these milestones and so on, and then someone would deliver it over time, and then like. Four years later, out will pop some software. Yeah, it sounds like the auto industry. Oh, that's, is that the IBM model? Like, well, yeah, or the it, Ford Motor Company. Back model. then, it was a valid way of doing things because you, you needed all those people right. around to kind of design that. But stuff. it's not disruptive technology, is it? Well, that's, it that that's a good. That was a good 
a good way of building software up until you know the 2000s or so, maybe a bit earlier. Um, the thing is that um, there was a kind of shift in uh, the way that uh, software was designed and the way that technology was produced, mm. in that actually it became cheaper and cheaper to produce things, and the length of time it would take to, to make stuff meant that if you'd spent six years building a piece of software and someone else had got the same idea in the meantime, they could do it in a year. So by the time you've released your software, you're several years out of date and it will mm. fail. So the response to that was uh, to constantly be producing, showing results along the way. And that was the beginning of the, the agile uh, way of doing uh, stuff for the web and doing stuff for software. And that, in its essence, is uh, rather than waiting to release something all the way down the line once you've got it all planned out and it's all working and everything, you release something iteratively. So you design something small and then you add the next bit and add the next bit and add the next bit. Mm. And that meant you could respond to changes in the market and that meant that you could reduce risk in your project. Okay, but that's, so that, not, that's not hacking. Well, I think that what happened is that when that happened, that moved to this kind of agile way of doing things, there was a sudden uh, regaining of interest that actually being able to respond quickly to your environment and using technology that was suddenly quite freely available, uh, tools that didn't actually cost anything, any money uh, to use were available um, to anybody to have. The cost of uh, computing went way down. Uh, access to broadband went up, and all these yeah. things converged yeah. at a point where people were just going, "Well, actually, there is value now in working rapidly to test out ideas." Right and now, there's cloud space. There's app stores available at anyone, so people can monetize. Sure, and you've seen quick. It, you've seen how you know you get billions of uh, downloads of apps in a couple of years just after release. Mm. So being able to do things quickly means that you can get things to market uh, more rapidly, and you can be more successful. So I think that that, that was definitely a big part in it. Um, and I, personally, um, I I was running a web agency for a good few years, and I saw this kind of stuff going on around me, and I was in that kind of uh, time-for-hire world where you, you basically find a client to pay for your time, and then you have some other people around you, and you bill their time to them and hope that that pays everyone's mortgage and maybe a bit of profit. Um, but what I saw happening... familiar. <laughs> yeah, sorry, dude. I just critiqued uh, <laughs> your entire model as an agency. Uh, crushing. It's now uh, called Albion Drive. I've got, to, uh, I've got to confront this sooner or later. Carry on, <laughs> okay. carry on. So um, you're saying adding no value to the world. No, I'm just kidding. Price, well, you had awesome that, There is a lot of value in, in doing that. But the, um, the law of going and doing a kind of tech startup is what really... Uh, kicked me out of that mode, yeah. um, and things uh, really took a, ch a change after the dot-com bubble burst, and things started stabilizing, and you saw the, the emergence of these, um, these tools that enabled you to work quite rapidly and test out ideas quite quickly, mm -hmm. and I just started spending time uh, in cafes with friends um, and testing out little ideas. Coding? So, or just yeah, designing, ideas. thinking, talking. And I quickly realized that actually you can demonstrate an idea quite easily by just building the beginning of it. Okay. And that, so over coffee, um, I, um, I made something with my friend Andrew Dubber, who's a, a radio DJ and a lecturer at um, uh, Birmingham City University. He's a professor there now. Um, and he uh, had this idea. And it was back when... Uh, everyone was complaining about radio licensing for music and how it was really complicated. And he said, well, you know what? Why don't we release a silent radio station? Um, and so we built it over coffee. And it's a, it's a stupid idea, but if I, um, if I say, hey, Jude, to you now, okay, what's playing in your head? The song. Yeah. So it's like license-free music. Um, oh, okay. 
<laughs> so you just say those two words, you don't pay the publishing. So we whatever. made a really dumb okay. app that just gave you the name of an earworm track to play in your head to clear another earworm. And you could just listen to this list of, listen to this list of stuff. Okay. Now, it sounds really stupid, and it was a stunt. Um, but it was funny, and a lot of people kind of... And it's kind of an example of what you do. And we did it in about half an hour or something in, over coffee. Can you give another example of like a hack, just so people who aren't familiar with the industry or something, or just something you might do in a couple days, or something you did in the past where it was like, I, I saw this thing, I wanted to go in and see if I could solve it, and then that was a hack. Just to give people something they can put their hands on. I think maybe talking a little bit about hack days and hackathons probably be wise. Okay. The, um, the, what, what are those things? So this is, this is a, a thing that's come from America, and it's, it's been part of that kind of maker-hacker scene for some time, that people enjoyed gathering together and making stuff together. Um, sitting by yourself at home, you know, plugging away at something, well, it's, it's, it's cool, like, you can make interesting stuff happen, but people enjoy making together and showing their results to each other. Is collaboration a big part of hacking? I think so, yeah. And, uh, does, it, and does it have to be physical collaboration? Not necessarily. I think there's a lot of people who um, enjoy doing things with, with technology, uh, and they often give away their work for free on the web. I mean, this is something yeah. that's a really, really big thing, and it's a real force for good. Um, there's a, um, a company called Git, GitHub in America, um, and... What they're doing is absolutely fascinating because they're making it so that anyone who makes something that has a, a digital component, if they want to, they can apply um, a you know, relevant license to it so someone else can use it. And then they put it up on, online for them to use. But not just to use, they can then take it, adapt it, reuse it, and then apply the adaptations back into the original code. And so by so doing, you're enabling millions of people to collaborate on... Is that how like, Linux stuff. was written and things like that? Yeah, a lot of open source techno technology has been written in a similar way. Obviously, that predates GitHub, yeah. but a similar yeah. thing applies. And once you're in that scene, it's pretty addictive because you, know, you, you have an idea and you just Google it and it's already on GitHub. The, or the little bit of it you need is there. And so you're able to work really, really quite quickly and it's quite... Uh, it's quite inspiring meeting those guys and seeing what they're doing. Okay, so um, a hackathon that same or kind of spirit yeah. is where you get everybody in the same room, mm. which and we've uh, we've hit this a lot of times on the show. Where that whereas the world is virtual and everyone's on social media, it, amazing mm. to think that when you actually get people looking at each other and in the same physical space, you do get a lot of innovations happening. Yeah. Definitely, and when you mash together uh, people with different disciplines in a space with a time constraint, okay, uh, and uh, some kind of social pressure, you get interesting things happening. Okay. Yeah. And so that's what a hack day is. Okay. You get, uh, so these guys, the Three Beards guys, they do good hack days. Uh, I mean, wow, that's a we, ringing we endorsement. Never, uh, yeah, we, we never, <laughs> well, yeah, we never done one before. We, we do one, one annual one. And I guess I would call it a bit of a, I call it a culture hack. Like it's an art, it's an art meets tech hackathon. Okay. And the premise was simple. It was, what happens if you take 50 artists and 50 techies, developers, hackers, makers, put them together in, in a room for a weekend, give them all the food and drink and whatever they need, so they, don't have to, they only have to focus on, and the only thing is take data and turn it into something creative. Now, the difference is that a lot of hackathons, you're building a product or you're launching a, like a business or, you know, like there's a, a specific goal. Ours was a completely open brief, and we did it on purpose. It was meant to be because it's all about creative, which for me, I think, is the interesting part about hacking is for people that maybe haven't gone to hackathons, I mean, we did it so that artists who may never get a chance to work with techie people um, in a normal situation could come along and feel like they didn't have to know how to code and dev. This was like okay. opening it up and vice versa. So like all the techies might not necessarily get a chance to work with somebody who's a, you know, a, a painter or a sculptor or, you know, just generally, a, you know, 
a milliner or whatever. And the, that was this crazy idea that came okay. out of a, a, a beard's Are these usually all-night events? I mean, is it usually kind it's of reminiscent weekend. of like a university where people yeah. are staying up all night and doing... It can be a bit like that. The, um, the general idea is that you, uh, you, you gather today on a Friday evening, um, meet some other people, have some quite open-ended conversations, uh, and then for the whole of, a, of the Saturday, you'd be making something together with a team that had just come together at that event. So people you'd never met before, you would then immediately be trying to make something with. Um, and then it can continue through the night on Saturday. I'm, I'm not so hot on the idea that uh, uh, kind of digital creativity has to be about working long hours. Okay. Uh, you know, in my company, I, I'm there you know, leaving the door at six o'clock. I call it leaving by example. Because I don't believe in a, uh, I don't believe a That's long a language hack. That's yeah, it is. It's a language hack. It's right? a long hours culture isn't very helpful to people, and I think if you go to too many hack days, you get this idea that you have to work through the night, and it's all right. about very heroism, and it's it's not. Really, I, I'm more interested in the collaboration that occurs, um, and then on the Saturday, um, you'd be kind of finishing up on whatever you've made, and then and then there's a kind of demonstration point. And that's the social pressure part. So you've got this very rapid coming together of people to make something to a brief of some kind. In this case, it was produce a work of art or something to do with uh, uh, the the point where art and technology collide. Um, And then uh, people who are your peers or people who you respect will then come in out from from externally and then be judges. So you don't want to look like an idiot. Um, Social pressure again. You need something in there to motivate. Yeah, so time constraint a bit of social pressure about you know a demonstration right. uh, an end point or a beginning mm. um, and then um, uh, some kind of decent brief so a, t- a, t- a tightening of it because uh, if you just said hey everyone come to this space and we're all going to make some stuff right. well you're not going to get anything done you'll, be- you'll begin something um, yeah. and you know you, you, you find that there are those kinds of, of events where it's a bit un, unknown what's, what's supposed to happen and, okay. but by having that absolute deadline of 6pm you've got to have something demonstrable okay. um, so besides the silent <clears throat> radio station what would you say is, is one of the hacks you're proud of I think the, the thing that I'm most proud of as a hack probably um, is what we did for Comic Relief last year so um, uh, I've, I've been to lots of hack days uh, I've, I've, uh, you know, I've done quite a wide variety of ones. Some with prizes, some with just, you know, just for the love of it. Mm-hmm. Um, the the thing that we did for Comic Relief was we took that kind of hack day principle and we extended it out over six one week periods. Um, and so a team of us, uh, three or four of us, went into Comic Relief and we set up a little area and it's called the Explorer Laboratorium. And the idea is that we found six people in Comic Relief who had an idea for a way that they could raise money all year round. So rather than just on the day that they have to kind of spread their bets by being able to raise additional funds throughout the year. Um, And we started on a Monday with one of these people and me and a designer and a project manager. And by Friday, we would have built a web app and deployed it and have users on it and then demonstrate it to the CEO at like wow. 1, just, 1 p.m., which is pretty intense. For the international 
listeners, comic uh, relief runs Red Nose Day. Red Nose Day, yeah. It's a British thing, year. Red Nose Day, right? It is. I have it in Australia and New Zealand as okay. well. We have it at home. But Which it's is like a big big day to raise money for some charities and for all the sick, comedians sick get Sick kids, specifically for sick children. Okay. Um, no, no, that's, um, that's children in need. So uh, this uh, comic relief is a kind of meta charity. They, they fund other charities. So they've raised money for... Um, a wide variety of yeah that's right yeah and Red Nose Day is one and Sport Relief Sport Relief is the other one yeah, yeah so okay. they're two big ones but of course those are two big points which happen every they alternate don't they each year is it like a yeah. different one so you hacked you basically created a product that you could argue might not have been able to have been created in three months by a team of 50 engineers by getting like a small team sounds like Navy SEALs yeah. you know, the, it's the a tough, crack team of yeah, elite the tougher the mission Specialist. the smaller the team I mean but in a way you guys go and you don't get to get stopped by like you said all these processes that used to happen in bigger corporations sure, or you longer need, lead times you need some of that you need to have some safety in there yeah. because you know you might be dealing with children or you might be dealing with money or there's, there's issues in there that you need to be aware of what we were attempting to do by going into that organization and kind of demonstrating uh, that you can build something very quickly in a five-day period or four-day period um, wasn't that the, the hacks necessarily need to be of high value. They did show them at, like directions they could go as, go as a company, and some of them were really funny. Uh, I mean, they had to be funny because it's comic relief. Yeah. I'll give you an example of one. Uh, it's called The Last Laugh, and it's a will-writing app. And the idea is that you, uh, you write your will with the service, and then you put something funny in your will, um, and then the end result was that you downloaded it and you got a kind of um, a, a legal document a that will. was your will. Okay. So I was like, you know, uh, here's my will. In the event of my death, uh, I would like my, the executors of my will to ensure that in my coffin is a recording of my voice saying, let me out. Um, <laughs> to be played during the service, you know, or something like that. <laughs> you know what I mean? So that's, <laughs> that's now a legal document. I was just thinking um, about my own will. <laughs> <laughs> But it was it was stupid. But the, um, the 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 big comment there was that actually um, for charities like that, they're not really taking advantage of legacy giving. Some charities are really on it, and they're making millions and millions a year. And uh, there's a gap there for charities to make money in interesting ways okay. by providing a service. And it was a fully legal document by Friday. And so the the thing is that we weren't really saying these are finished things. Please release them, put them out to the world. It's the hackers, the message, is the yeah. the concept here. We were showing them possible futures for the organisation, and you can hack something together very quickly, and that shows you a potential direction you could go at low expense, uh, and you can chuck it away. Okay. Because like it doesn't matter. You, you, or right. you can invest in it. Right. Um, so it's like it's proof of concept. You deliver something that, that works in a way and they can mm. go with it if they want. And it, it, it inspires people. You're in yeah. a room with, well, we've experienced this. You're in yeah, a room yeah. with people making something very, very quickly. There's a kind of heightened sense of creativity. And then this end point where you're doing a demo, it's a really, really uh, exciting way to work. Um, it feels a bit like TV. Um, like a reality show? Wow. Well, yeah, like you're on a deadline and you're yeah, like, yeah, I've got to get this out. It's, okay. That's the end point. Um, and the, the thing there, I hope, that happened was that we kind of prototyped that, that idea for Comic Relief and for other charities. So we showed that what, what you could do to kind of think about what your organization could be yeah. is to hack it, to make something quickly or a series of things to give yourself a bit, of, a bit more room to innovate in rather than feeling like, oh, you know, to get any idea out the door takes six months and I've got to get the approval of the, the board and everything. Yeah. Actually, you could maybe do something slightly different. Oh, I like this. I want someone to come in and hack Silicon Rail and London Rail. I mean, like, it sounds like <laughs> you get a bunch of people in and then they, they show you all these things that you didn't know were possible or things yeah. that your own organization was slow to address. So you're right. The, a, a, a big organizations are now kind of cutting onto this and you get people who do organize hack days for 
corporates. Um, I'm, I've not done so much of that. Um, it, uh, I kind of feel like I'm giving giving a lot in that time. It's quite intense okay. emotionally. Um, so I just decided I decided to throw all that energy into starting a company, um, and that's that was the beginning of Makeshift when okay. we realised that this model of doing multiple things rapidly and seeing potentially that the you know these things could turn into startups or apps or whatever um the logical next step the gap was what happens if you did did that process repeatedly all the time with sufficient investment funds behind you to be able to take the ones that worked and turn them into startups okay. it almost seems like a company hiring you to break into their security it seems like a derivative of that because like if they hired a team they come in and show you other things you're doing completely wrong whether it's product development marketing strategy all this stuff you know, uh, that you couldn't really see. I don't know. There's a danger there in that you look like the smart consultant guys are coming in and showing you how everything should be done yeah. and you can demotivate everyone. So what we didn't do was um, try to be all big-headed about it. We went in, we involved the, the people who were in the organization. We made sure it was their ideas that we built, not ours. Um, and then we made sure that it was like a demonstration to everybody and then they were involved in choosing which ones to do. Yeah, that's um, smart. Otherwise, you just look like some smarty-pants guys coming yeah. in. And, and you, know, it's, you know what it's like? It's like, oh, here we go. The tech kids are going to come in and show us. And actually, it's like the whole point of it is showing them that it's about creating, not breaking or changing. It's about creating right. something with what you have. Okay, that's good. Let's talk about makeshift because we usually we try to talk about someone's business you know, in the, in the early part. But what, I do what love is, makeshift. What is makeshift? I mean, you just kind of discussed it, but like, I always ask simple questions like, what have you done with makeshift and what are your plans and what are you going to do and what makes you different? Or I always say, why will you win? I know that's a bit of an egotistical frame I'm putting on that, but I'll leave you with those questions. What, what is makeshift? Makeshift is a startup studio and that is a, a, a reasonably new type of business operation that takes signals from the kind of incubators um, and accelerators of the world um, and also um, kind of gives a nod to the, towards a kind of VC model. So what we do is uh, we are a team of people who work on our own ideas. Um, we uh, are all makers, so there's about 12 of us in the company now. And, um, and your title is Makers. Yeah, okay, makers, cool. digital makers, that's the way we look at it. Hmm. Um, generalists, people who can kind of turn their hand to lots of different parts of a startup. And the idea is that we are repeatedly making um, things that could turn into digital businesses. So each month we're releasing a new product. So this year, we're ahead actually, I think we've done 13 hacks and we're probably going to hit about 20 by the end of the year or something. So we are letting a thousand flowers bloom. So rather than a startup, which would be, uh, you're sure familiar with. One idea. Uh, one idea, uh, one, one team, um, and a very singular direction in where you're going to go, and you're going to die off, fail, or win, and, and succeed, based on um, like whether you've got your idea right at the beginning, or whether you can adapt fast enough to find the right idea in, by pivoting. That's what a lot of people yeah. call it. Um, I like so, that word and hate that word at the same time. So, I have a similar feeling about it. Um, the... Our, our approach is quite different to that because we're, we're not going after one idea. We could have done that, but actually the, the, the three of us who founded the company, uh, we all come from uh, kind of different backgrounds that converged on 
this this model, this startup studio model. And there's a bunch of different reasons for that. Paul Birch, who's my um, one of my founders, he was one of the um, uh, guys who benefited from the Bebo sale. Um, he was there right at the beginning of that, um, and he Michael, had a, Michael Birch's brother, yeah, the founder of Bebo. Okay, I've and heard the name. he um, uh, he's probably most well known for a um, birthday alarm, which was an early kind of viral hit. It's a very simple idea where you get reminders about people you know and when their birthdays are. Right. Uh, and it was, it's brilliantly viral. And it's, it just says, for this service to work really well, please upload your entire address book. Uh, and then the next person gets it. And then maybe one out of 20 or something will upload their entire address book. And then on it goes. So you get a lot of people on it very quickly. Mm. And so that was very successful. Um, so Paul's had some big wins. He's also had some pretty uh, big losses. He's had some you know, uh, failures as well as... Uh, successes, um, but because he's he's done pretty well, he's been investing in some of the most well-known uh, startups in London uh, as an angel. Um, but he really wanted to get back to the craft. Uh, he wanted to get back yeah. to the early making feeling, rather than being involved just at the kind of governance level. Is this hacking or is this design? Um, for Paul, it's um, I think it's the process of designing startups. I think that's what he okay. is interested in. Um, Nick, who is my other founder, is the design. So Paul is like the experienced entrepreneur on the team. Nick um, used to be the uh, design director at Psychic Studios, and uh, they're doing some really great design work. They continue to, to do great work. Um, and we, we formed a really good relationship because I'm the kind of tech guy he's the design guy and then we have the kind of experienced entrepreneur guy and that's a it's one of those t-shaped startup uh, setups right yeah, yeah okay uh, so, of, three beards hack of the hustler and the um, hipster right that's that's hack basically of the hustler right. and the hipster we, we fit that. that model totally and what we, we decided to do was to take what we'd learned from the comic relief process and what learned what Paul had learned from doing kind of repeated angel investing and do something quite innovative in that we would repeat that process of having a, a good idea and then doing a hack and then testing it out very, very rapidly by putting it out really, really quickly, but doing it in repeat. Okay. So, so if I walk into the make, makeshift today, what would I see? Like how many people are there? What kind of workstations are they on? What's, what's like a typical day at makeshift? About 12 of us in a little studio just by Old Street Roundabout. Okay. Um, we had to be there really. Um, yeah, same about, with us. Talk about accelerating serendipity. And you know, if, you're in, uh, if you're in that area, it's probably the most serendipitous area in East London, right? So Everyone's matters. around. It's easy to bump into people. You get yeah, yeah, yeah. the advantage of having a space that you can have uh, events in. So a typical day is probably um, uh, a couple of us in there reasonably early. Um, it's quite calm. Eight-ish, nine-ish? I'm, yeah, about nine-ish probably kicks off. Okay. Um, it, it's kind of got a quite relaxed, ascetic kind of uh, feeling to it. It's quite dimly lit. Everyone's sitting there with uh, on a beanbag or on a, a, a desk. Um, Music? Sometimes, yeah. Okay. Um, it feels like a, a home, because it was a home. It was someone's flat, so okay. it's got a kitchen in it. It's really, it's really a nice environment. And um, we're trying to make it the kind of optimum environment for digital makers to be in. Okay. So we're kind of self-analyzing, like, is this good? Do we like yeah. being here? What, what can we do to make it better? We've got a two-story shed out the back. Uh, 
we call it the shed scraper. I don't even know what it's for yet. Okay. Uh, it's just there. But you have a shed. We have this shed. All of your hardware. Just in case. Well, we're going to have to have we're going to have to have a three D printer in there or something. Right? You're going to have to put something big something in there. Something like that. Yeah. But do you need um, any of that stuff right now, or is like a, an iMac enough? For... It's really mini. Yeah. Everyone just has a laptop. Okay. Um, and we all work on in the way that we want to work. We have stand standing desks and and things going on. Um, and will there be client projects you're working on? Will, will a company come in and pay you X to do something for them, or is this just all ideas you have? We don't take on any client work. No, that was okay. a, a that was your old job. crucial thing. Like We could go and do that, or we could go and do a startup, but we yeah. want to do something very different. And so the, uh, the on the walls of our studio is kind of our, our status. We've got post-it notes and uh, bits of paper stuck everywhere. Um, but the crucial thing is that we've got all of the products that we're working on kind of as a little um, status view. Um, and we've got this um, process that we're now developing, which is probably the most important part of Makeshift. Um, shall I just talk a little bit about that? Yeah, it's, yeah, go. So um, having ideas isn't hard. Uh, we've all got loads of ideas. There's no problem with having ideas. Uh, it's kind of filtering the good ideas from the bad ideas is the trick. So what we do as a team is we're always constantly uh, scratching our own itches. Like if we've got we've got found a little problem, we'll do little hacks. And anyone can just at any point just go and do a, a little tiny little experiment. Just a few hours t- testing something out, experimenting with something. And then once a quarter, we, uh, we all get around together and we would have prepared presentations about the things we've learned from scratching our itches. Um, and we propose doing a hack on, on an idea. Uh, so uh, I proposed a few ideas at the last one. One of them got made, and we did a little hack day. So this was Build Grabber, um, and it's uh, everyone's building websites all the time. Wouldn't it be great if every day something's just taking a snapshot of the homepage and putting it in your Dropbox? Like that's a really dumb idea, but you can see a lot of people wanting that. Like, like a time lapse. Of so the... you can then make a video of what your website looked like through time. Okay. For, months or years or you look at your competitors websites or yeah very simple idea okay so that's an example um or uh, maybe uh, attending which is a, an event service that uh, was very very minimal it just lets you see uh, who else is attending an event that you're going to um and you can follow them on twitter it's very very minimal we use that now for drink about oh really we, we've test we'll be i don't know alpha beta testing it um it's great oh yeah i've seen you asking if you're gonna go and that so it's like it's basically like for silicon drink about it's not a registered event it's not a ticketed event even right. you know like like the other three events so we needed a system where people could kind of just see but like just with their twitter account so they didn't have to go through a hassle so these guys built it and we were like yep we will test that and it's it's working really really well Seems okay. working. Let, let me ask like just an obvious question like uh, how do you fund yourself do you uh, have to sell an idea or is it an idea have to become something that well we're very lucky in that paul has had some big successes in the past so he's able to fund us entirely okay and um, at some point i'm sure that we'll be taking external investment in the things that we make but we're not at that point yet because okay. we're quite early so you're kind of always before an incubator before an accelerator you're just generating ideas well but- the, the the trick is that because we're able to come up with these um small hacks we can then test them quickly so we pitch these ideas to ourselves and then we pick the things that we're going to go for and then we do like a one day hack or a week hack or a two week hack depending on what we want to put in and then we release it and we test it in the world with live people okay uh, and that's it it's out there okay. and then we but learn you based you on the behavior you sell it per se you'll just no not at that point because it it's, just, it's just an experiment okay. and then if we get a good signal back from it we get people saying this is lovely so I mean drink, the drink about guys using attending is a great signal because that means anybody in the world who's organizing a meetup or a tech meetup 
would be able to use our service and they're yeah. keen to so that would mean that other people would be so that means to us right that's a signal that we should then invest so we okay. then put in three months of three person time up to about a hundred thousand pounds into that idea to get it to the point where we we've got it to that crucial kind of product market fit point or get or approaching that where you've you've sufficiently improved it or moved it around to fit what the customers or the clients or the users are saying about it and okay. uh, so that it's actually useful and they're willing to pay or there's some obvious um but it's, uh, not, revenue a, model. it's not a business yet it's not a business yet okay. but at that point you've then de-risked it because we'll have had another handful of ideas that just didn't make it so, so they've all been killed right so we've, we've tried a bunch of stuff out something just doesn't work we don't do it and that's totally opposite to what happens if you're doing a um, a startup, because you go you, you've got an idea, for, one idea for a startup. You go and pitch it to your friends and family. Your friends and family then give you their life savings, <laughs> yeah. And then you've got to make that idea work. Now that's great if the idea works, right? Or you've got time, or you've got enough runway to be able to get it off the ground. But if you've got a really bad idea, then you could really get sucked into following through on that idea just because you've had that trust from people and you've got to sure. you've got to keep going you've got to keep going and i've been there you know i've i've kind of sucked myself into products and and things that just weren't working but because i've promised that they've got to work and i've put my reputation yeah. on the line behind yeah. it you like you end up with this massive opportunity cost where you've spent so long that you've got to spend more time on it yeah social pressure is really powerful um, and what way. we've done at makeshift is to say you know what we're going to try all of these guys please help please have have a go check them out we'll learn from you you know suggest stuff to us if we think they're, they're going to work then we'll follow through but if they're if they're not working we're just going to kill them okay have you spun out different businesses have you done this like 100 grand here 100 grand there uh, multiple times or- um we have we've got about four things in that kind of product point now i think okay we haven't I think probably two of the things that we've uh, gone for have got to that point now. And when, if they get a critical mass, will you def- when you go out and find someone outside of your space to you know, be the CEO, be the this, be the that? That's take- the crucial question at the moment because sure. we, could, we could bring in external entrepreneurs at the point where we've kind of de-risked those things. So we've, they've gone through that big filter and we've got it so that we've got some users, we've got you know, some revenue. Um, you know, that's possibly a good point to bring someone else in. Uh, it could be a point to spin it out as a separate company. So with one of our things that we're releasing that next month, because it's banking related, we had to do it as a separate entity and did get FCA approval and all that sort of stuff. And it did kind of require that extra step. Mm. Um, we are looking at that. And actually, we're trying to learn from what other people who've done similar stuff around the world have done. Um, there's, there's few of these kinds of models. Some guys in Germany, there's Betaworks and... Um, uh, America, there's science. A lot of these people have, um, uh, usually, they usually have a kind of an industry focus. Uh, so it will just be like healthcare or, you know, or web tech or something. Um, and the, uh, the, the trick for us is uh, at what point do we decide to, do, to make that change or do we try to keep it as our own team and just grow the team right. to the point where we get there. So okay. there's, there's questions there. No, right? I think you kind of laid out the You can see why I wanted to get him in. This is why I'm quite fascinated with Makeshift as a concept. It's quite new, but if you think about it, it's like, of all the startups we speak to, and they're like, you know, so far we've been very lucky. We've had lots of wonderful big founders, but, you know, there are many that obviously fail, but they've got 20, did you say, products so far? We're going to be going for about that this year, I think. Which and is... four, at the moment, are just in a point. to have 20 ideas, and bearing in mind that the team 
I know a few members of the team aside from Steph, they're very talented people. Everyone was quite like in the scene, was very like, what are they doing over there? Because you suddenly had these interesting, very talented right. people who'd all done various levels of startups and businesses coming together. But I, the idea I think is really interesting and worth keeping an eye on is because it's this just rapid, iterative, real-time, 20 ideas, crank them out, see which one flies, and get okay. back four. No, that, that's good. Um, this is usually where we hit with, with a few devil's advocate questions. Yeah, and do I it. Hope, I hope you have one. <laughs> I got one. And uh, I, since I didn't know exactly what you did, I didn't really have this prepared, but you know, you mentioned the fact that, um, especially when it comes to, to angel investing, when it's friends and family, I mean, Jesus, yeah, a yeah. lot of people would feel really bad or feel really indebted to anyone who, who gives them that kind of capital. And yeah, they could follow that idea like years past even necessary and i can see that a problem with some startups but i guess on the flip side you could argue that since you don't live and die by you know the equity in the next round and you know you look at guys right now with their startups and they've had the joyous few hundred grand raised and now they're going in for their series a or series b however you qualify it and they're like really sweating bullets they're trying to make payroll and they really have to make this product work. And in your situation, you're not really married to one of these things. And does it ever become a danger of you walking into like a think tank atmosphere? I know you want people to be creative, but are there, is there ever a point where it's like, well, that might work, but if it doesn't, then we'll do this. If it doesn't, we'll, we'll do that. Do you ever think that there's a point where it becomes too creative and not about the bottom line? I do worry about that. Um, and that's a perfectly valid criticism because uh, there's always the danger of ooh shiny. And we have hired all these amazing people. Ooh, shiny. Oh, ooh, shiny. And we have yeah. a big ooh, shiny ooh, room, shiny, right? right? Wow, ooh, yeah. shiny. You know, right. let's try this out over here. Let's try that over there. Um, the, the trick that we're going for is that each of these ideas, someone has to passionately care about it. Um, so mm. am I waking up in the morning excited about the idea? Am, am, am I, like, getting up and going getting out the laptop over breakfast and going, I've just got to do this uh, little thing on this thing. You know, I've got to make a change over here because blah, blah. that passion doesn't go away. Uh, we talk about strong ideas loosely held. And I think it's a really good principle to have. Um, we really care passionately about these things until we realize they're just not going to work. And then you have to kill your darlings. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, it's tough just to go, oh God, I love this product. And I don't think it's working. Right. Yeah, it's really hard, but just to look at it and go, wow, I've just sunk four months of my life in on this thing, and I've been up you know, at night working on it, I've been doing everything to do it, to get it off the ground. That takes a lot of conviction just to go kill it. Yeah, um, that's why directors don't edit their own films because they're, <laughs> yeah. they're married Just keep to that, that bit, keep that, that bit. scene that we spend all night on in the lighting. But you know, the editor comes in and it's like it's got nothing to do with the story. It's gone. And yeah. Like, but I spent so much time. So it, and it's also tough to stay passionate about one project for a long period of time. I mean, I see Jeff Bezos and I'm like, dude, aren't you sick of selling stuff over the web? But I mean, it, it must be hard to stay excited about a project unless it's the ultimate thing for even a period of time. I mean, you I, must. See I think. I, a lot of people now have this opinion of me that I'm uh, like a kind of uh, I'm a butterfly when it comes to tech projects. Um, I, you know, I'm interested in one thing one day and not interested in the other. Um, the thing is, I ran an agency for like 10 years. You know, that's waking up every day and absolutely nailing it on making sure that there's new clients in the door and yeah, you're building a line. thing. Yeah, I've done that. Yeah. Uh, my last startup was like, I mean, we're putting in like 100 hours a week or something. It was crazy. Some, crazy. some of those weeks were just really intense. Um, and, you know, 
that, that's the opposite end of it. So that's when you, you care so much, you're kind of killing yourself to make the idea work. Yeah. And the trouble that's is... a tightly if, held idea. Not yeah, loosely yeah held. so not a loosely held idea. The, 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 the problem there is that you're kind of forcing the product out. So sometimes, I mean, Paul talks about this, that actually not putting too much effort in on your idea gives you a better idea of whether people really like it or not. Because if you're having to force it and force it and force it, what, is, is it working? Is the thing working? Like, oh, yeah, is, the viral, yeah. is the viral loop on it good? Or is it you just kind of sending yeah. good emails to people? And if you were to suddenly stop doing that, what happens? Would, would the product continue yeah. by itself? And so we're kind of going after this class of product that um, does have a sense of continuation within it. There's this uh, magical number of like 1.1. If you can get each user to get 1.1 more users... You're, you just get, end up with this curve of growth. Yeah. Now, if you can magically find one that builds itself, then lucky. Uh, there are many, <laughs> are many of those, those things around. But there is something about like, over-pushing um, over your early ideas because you might be kind of interfering with your own signal. Uh, so let's say we, went, we started doing product launches and all the things we put out, and we get loads of press on everything we do. Mm-hmm. Well, great, you're on TechCrunch and you, 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 know, you get some early users, and that's brilliant. That's, I mean, it's absolutely brilliant exposure for everything we're doing. But we do look at it as, for that kind of exposure as just general exposure for makeshift and the products we're going for mm-hmm. because you can really get into a point where you, you, you've kind of interfered with your own Measurements. Yeah, press can be misleading too. Yeah, because you go, oh wow, I've got loads of people clicking this page and now our numbers are all out. You've kind of got to wait for that, that to die down before you realize you can work out what, what's happening. Okay. And people do talk about that uh, signal noise being being a crucial thing that you've got to yeah, kind of work out. Yeah, that's crucial in like any startup. Bryce, what, what's your question or what angle am I missing? Because I always never know the full story that goes behind these businesses. Oh, what's my time? Well, um, so my devil's have a good question. More of a sort of a life as a hacker question. So Seth has uh, four wonderful children, all under about six, I believe. I Uh, I just assumed hackers, you know, were single and, you know, the hair's a mess and they go home to a nasty (laughs) flat. You're in Angelina Jolie, uh, hacker's territory from 1991 (laughs) still. I don't even know if I've seen that movie. Yeah, yeah. Okay. These days they run web agencies for 10 years and then create their own ideas. And I want to hear about leaving by example later, but go ahead. Yeah, yeah. And so Seth's got uh, four wonderful kids um, under, I think, under about six. Under seven, yeah. Under seven. And they've come along to our hackathon. That's a startup. Also, there's a beautiful wife, Emily, for the, for the record. I'm terribly sorry if you're watching this about keeping them out so late at our hackathons. I just want to get that in there. Um, <laughs> I really did keep them out on some of those. We had a whole weekend. Ours was like Friday night right through Sunday night. And it really uh, it went on. I kept him out far too late because he does have little ones. But my question is, the reason I bring that up is, how do you explain to four kids under seven uh, Dad's a hacker, and what does that mean? Like in a, in a, in in this world of as you you referenced, you know, hacking. When we look at it in a mass media context, or what they might be exposed to indirectly through media would be certain things like the phone hacking scandal and NSA. Not that they're, they're probably still too young for that, but I'm always curious about this from a family, you know, from a family point of view. And and then how do you kind of how do you explain to to your kids? And are you uh, do you think they may go down the same path? Are they quite curious about technology? Um. The other day, uh, Imi said to me, she's my oldest, uh, she said, uh, when I grow up, I want to be an artist like you. <laughs> nice. Interesting though, right? Because she's so, come to both of our art hacks. Yeah, so she's, oh, really? she's seen yeah. the idea. She's seven. She's, she's six. Six. Kids are smart. Um, she's seen that um, the way that I work is, I call it sketching with code. Yeah. Um, and so it's not like uh, kind of sitting there engineering something 
Um, it's all very kind of sketchy. Mm -hmm. um, so at home, we've got. I've been trying to introduce them to the idea of technology in the home and uh, always making things. Um, so it might create something everyday thing I'm trying to instill okay. into. Do they have Raspberry uh, Pis at home or anything like that? We haven't got that yet. We have got this thing called Scratch um, uh, on the Mac, which is a free piece of software that MIT invented. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's okay. what Code Club runs on as well. Okay. Yeah, Code Club do a lot of the um, uh, kind of uh, workshops. Yeah. Um, on, on Scratch. Have you seen Cano? I haven't Cano. seen Cano.me. It's like build a computer out of a box. It's a new startup like for, for ki teach kids how to build a hub with Raspberry Pi yeah. in it and you, ah. and you put it together and then you do the software. Might be a good one. I'm, I'm kind yeah, of trying to go, take us along that route because um, I've got a little outboard control board. It's, 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 got no, it's got nothing, no plastic top on it. It's just the circuit board and then a bunch of controls and like it looks really technical, <laughs> you know, what's this? Wow. Yeah. Uh, but it has things on it like a sound sensor and a light sensor and a little slider. And the thing is, you can make a cat jump up and down on the screen, depending on how loud you're shouting into this microphone, or you can, cool. uh, so you you can make it home. say things. Yeah, and it's, oh, okay. it was about 30 pounds or something. And wow. um, I just kind of le left them there with it. And then it, sometimes, uh, of an afternoon, I kind of walk in at the weekend, and they're just on scratch, and they're playing with it. And they, it's, it's theirs. They just... They just go on there. Oh, I'm just on Scratch doing this thing now. And the hardware plugs into the Mac. Yeah. So you can use like a software front end and then you can, yeah. okay. Right. And it looks like, it looks, it looks, looks like cool. you're hacking. It looks like, you know, it's a bit of yeah. a circuit board. Okay. So the other day, I mean, this is, uh, I don't know where this came from really, but um, I was just walking along talking to her and she said, Daddy, I want to make something. I've got an idea. Uh, I want to make a, uh, a seat with wheels on. Um, that, that I can make it go so I can go down the road on my seat and you can carry the seat on your back and I said okay well we could we could build that um, yeah let's make it um, how would you control it and then she said we'd just make an app for the iPad Jesus <laughs> <laughs> wow okay and you're like uh oh so well, I mean, I have to do it now, right? You can't get a suggestion like that from a six-year-old and then go, well, maybe, maybe later. You have to sit there and do it. So um, I'm now researching things on Maplin. I've never done anything like that. <laughs> Presumably, I'll have to find some motors and some wheels. And this is the awesome wild. part about having a hacker as a dad as well. Can yeah. you imagine that if you were a kid? It's like, Dad, can we make this? And it's like, oh, actually, I can, yeah. <laughs> but also, I think 30 years ago, the kid would just stop there because it wouldn't be possible. They'd be like, oh, yeah, we can't do that. And then, like, creativity would... But now she's like... We could make an app. And yeah, then, like, well, it opens all these possibilities. Let's do that. Um, and I think because we we do uh, we do have quite a making household. It's like a uh, it's a place where we're always drawing monsters. So I always draw these little monsters with the kids, and they colour them in, they cut them out, and then we uh, we have the recycling bin right next to the um, uh, like the kitchen table. And that sounds really messy, but it is pretty messy. But it means whenever they want to make something, they just go into the recycling bin, pull out a big cardboard box, turn it into a helmet or whatever, and then we just put it back in the recycling bin. It's like reuse, what is it, reuse, recycle. So yeah, yeah, yeah. We let them reuse the stuff Reduce, in a creative reuse, way so. before, um, before we chuck it. And it just means you end up with these really strange costumes and bits everywhere. Um, but they do have this opinion that they're able just to make things. Okay. Um, and you see that with other kids. And... Um, I don't know, there's something about instilling the idea that you can create and you can make. 
And if you look at what's ha- been happening with the school curriculum, it does it, it has scared me a little bit that um, kids yeah, aren't I'm, being convinced I'm, to get into that tech. Yeah, I'm glad you brought this up because we've we've had this discussion. I think when you were first on London Real, I asked you yeah. about this. But you know, you've got four kids. What what do you want to make sure they learn as they're growing up? And and what what alarms you about the curriculums that you see that, that um, lack? Uh, the, the, the big thing is that we don't know what the careers are going to be like, do we? We've got no idea. Can you imagine me yeah. going to my careers advisor when I was at school, even at, like, 17, just saying, you know, I want to be something when I'm older? And you know, a lot of people can't even describe what their job is. Uh, I don't yeah. I don't. I don't know how to describe your job at I don't, all. I don't either. Neither uh, do my parents, if I'm and, honest. And, and what's Mine's your easy. job? Something about content? <laughs> Yeah. Something. I mean, something. Yeah, you so, you still haven't explained your job. <laughs> yeah. Take more hours. Um, so all right. So, so there's the, that issue. I think there's that issue, um, and it's. I think it's pre- preparing children to have um, versatility. And um, for me personally, I'm trying to instill in them the idea that they can make with the computer, because I do see some horror stories that kids um, coming out of school uh, have, have. It's kind of. We, we assume that they are able to use computers because they're digital natives or whatever, but actually they're locked behind loads of layers of stuff that keeps yeah. the inner workings of the computer hidden away in a nice package until it goes wrong. And actually, um, the, one of the dangers of having someone like me in a household is that uh, if anything goes wrong on the computer, oh, I'll just fix it. And we've had, a, uh, we've had this kind of uh, uh, few years, I think, where the, uh, the kind of ZX Spectrum BBC hacker people like, um, you know, who, who know how the computers work on the inside have just been kind of not letting the kids take control and, you know, sort out the problems at home. Whereas when I was a kid, my dad didn't know too much. He was great at bringing home computers for me to play with and things. But then uh, he just kind of left it to me, and then I was the expert of the household. But I think as we've grown up, the parents are still like, oh, I'm in control, I'll do this thing on the, the computer. And, and we kind of hide them away by, behind these shields of protection that are um, like one way information flow sometimes yeah it's like a video game or a movie or something whether indeed not. it's not about digital technology being there for creativity it's for right. consumption um, and yeah. if you look at broadband it's the perfect example you, you get a broadband contract with uh, B- look at the download BT. versus upload speeds download versus up- upload yeah, 10 to 1. it's asymmetric and the, yeah. that asymmetry isn't just at, at that point it's through the entire industry it's in everything we do um, you know there's there's a there's a tendency to consume rather than produce even on the devices we have iPads are harder to consume on than they are, are harder to produce on yeah. than they are to consume and so I try to you know instill a, an inversion of that trend and I think that that's okay. probably so you- something I would you want them to understand kind of the inner workings of the technology they're using. And then it sounds like you just want them to stay creative, which I is think so. a very yeah. non-specific, non-technical thing, frame of mind. Yes. Um, and realizing that creativity is in all things. It's just a, it is just a frame of mind, I think. People yeah. say, oh, you know, I'm a creative technologist. And I just think, well, that's, that's obviously you're creative because you're a technologist. I mean, you have creative everything. Everyone's right. uh, in some way creative. Um, it's just how you let that come out in what you do. So, yeah. um, All right, I, let me hit you with another hard on. question here. Mm. Um, we usually ask people uh, about uh, if they had to switch industries, what would they do? But I'm going to hit you with something similar. If, uh, if, you had to, if, you got, if you got sacked out of makeshift tomorrow and you had to go start a company and say I gave you some money, you know, a couple million quid, and you had to actually pick one idea and roll with it, I know, <laughs> like a prison sentence. Yeah. But if you did, what, 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 what sector excites you right now? 
you know, and be as specific as you so can. So if I had to do something completely other than what I'm doing now, so yes. like I, I have to sign a deal saying I will not work in the internet industry yep. well, or something yeah. like that. You say you, you have to be the CEO of a company that's going to have to produce a product and you're going to have to live with that for the next three years. I know he's like, ah, I'm melting. But if you had to choose like, a, you know, an industry or a, a, I don't know, a product, what would it be? I, I'm really excited about what uh, is coming with biotech. I think that uh, there are huge changes going to come from the technology that's coming out um, of the ability to, you know, sequence the human genome in you know next to no time for less than fifty dollars. Um, I also Anything think specific in biotech that excites you? Because I've heard that mentioned here before. Yeah. So um, a friend of mine is a, um, a professor, and he. Um, he once showed me a, a piece of machinery that he was working on. Um, that um, <laughs> it sounds crazy. Um, uh, basically, he he'd invented a, a robot that could print um, uh, stem cells uh, that would survive and could be used to spawn other parts of the body. And when you look at what happens with three D printing and what they, what um, people have been doing about replacing. Um, Tracheas and stuff. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And the and the human heart, uh, ma- a mouse heart was completely uh, rejuvenated uh, with the use of stem cells. Recently, there's there's some very very interesting technology that's going to come around uh, healthcare and using technology that now looks way 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 ahead, uh, but I think isn't as far away as we think. Yeah. Um, so the the chance for that to do. To, to give the human race lasting improvement of, uh, and quality of life is is a big deal. I wouldn't have thought you would have said that. You know, really? Yeah, yeah. just because biology is is something very different than what you're talking about before. At least what I assume it is of people in the room coming up with ideas. And you know, I'm thinking information technology. Well, I, um, I'm interested in it because um, uh, you know, the, the gene sequencing is just a, a bunch of characters. I did the hack at um, uh, uh, Sizzle. And uh, I made a thing called uh, cryptographics, which was a way of representing data in a kind of graphic that you could wear. Mm. Um, secret passwords displayed in your living room in a visual form or in yeah, the objects around you. That. That's crazy. It was really cool. Right? Um, and somebody on Twitter, uh, who's uh, a guy who's been using Help Me Write, which is one of our products, uh, got in touch saying, Steph, you've just done this hack. It's re- that's really interesting. Um, and I'd made a, a website that you could put in any information you want and a password, and then it would encode it into a graphic. Um, you do Brian Rose to look and real, and you get... And it's an image, a graphic, with yeah. a certain number, pixel by pixel. But it's, it's a set of colored triangles. and it's, oh, it, okay. it, The idea was to uh, hide information in the humble IKEA print. Uh, so it looks like a... Like a Okay. Uh, it just looks like a dumb IKEA print for your wall, right? But actually, it holds your credit card details. Your Swiss bank account. Well, exactly. well, it <laughs> yeah. gets better, it gets more interesting, because Steph also made one out of... Your Bitcoin, uh, PVC, and it, it was a Bitcoin. Oh, was it? He okay. put a Bitcoin into a physical object that was laser cut. It was multi, four bits of plastic okay. at different layers with different sculpting. How do you was encode that? That's uh, the mystery. At the moment, you, well, I've, ma- I've made a page now where you can decode any of the images if you knew, uh, know the password. So okay. you just sit there and you can kind of work it out. It's a grid of triangles, so okay. you can kind of work it out. But um, going back to my story, um, uh, this guy got in touch and said. Um, this is really interesting. You mean you can encode any information at all? Well, I've just taken the genetic, genetic sequence for this bacterium and I've put it into a cryptographic, and here it is. And he sent me the image. And I realized then that there's lots of interesting stuff to do where you kind of mash entire new industries together in interesting ways. Yeah. Um, so the, uh, I think there's, 
that th- that's the point when you know the little hack gets interesting when someone does something completely unexpected with what you've made. Yeah. Um, and it yeah. sounds like you like putting those ideas immediately out on the web for people to consume, criticize, use, suggest. I mean, is it all about Great, greatest wisdom of the crowd being right? public? Or? True. I think that I've I've said that a few times. You know, we put it out immediately and. You know, that's the line I often take to make it simple for people to understand. But in this conversation, I, ha- I do have a gradient. So some stuff, just you, you just won't see it. I won't put it out. Um, so at the moment, I'm, I'm very interested in looking at how um, the, 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 the London map of Twitter uh, could be made. How could you gather the connections that are formed around um, Twitter and use that as a map to improve all the products that we're making in, in the city? So find ways to kind of connect people together so find little clumps of people so it's easier to launch things in London um, and then offer that as a a way of uh, other people doing things so that's a little experiment I'm doing on my just on my computer that just I won't put that out probably because I'm probably not allowed to okay so you're not putting out everything but you're but then at the other end I do something in a day like attending and then go hey I've made this thing who likes it you know all right, let me, hit, let me hit you with a few more questions and then I'm going to see if you got something for him. Look, I just want to address this one thing really quickly, which is leaving by example as opposed to leading by example. I'm from the States. We know that, I mean, I, I, I talk to Americans in the States and yeah, like yeah. 20% of the time they're telling me how hard they work. I'm like, Jesus, I haven't lived there in 10 years, but it's almost like this ethos of we work all night and we, we do this, we do this, we put in the hours. And you said leaving by example, you want to leave by a certain time in the day. Can you talk about... Why, and is that a British thing, and how that compares with the Americans? This is a reaction to having done the opposite for a long time. I have just been always working since, I don't know, since the day I left university. um, uh, When I was at uni, I was quite seriously ill. I had a small brain tumour. Jesus. And I I was basically acutely ill um, and uh, had a near-death experience and at that point I realized I wanted to like really make something of my time because you know we only have so much time and if you speak to anyone who's had a a similar kind of near-death experience early on in their life they tend to have this kind of drive this like I've just got to make this stuff happen like you know I don't know how long I have left in the world and all of that you know I'm perfectly fine I don't have any health problems now it was just at that point it was quite quite bad um but that stuck with me and actually that threw me into this mode of always working all the time like mm. every weekend in into the evening coming up with stuff and you know building my agency or whatever it is i would always be always be on and i mean that's that that did mean that i got good fast at uh, the stuff that I do, um, you know, they, they talk about this kind of 10,000 hours to become yeah, to adept something. at something. Right. And if you, can, if you can crunch those hours down by working all hours of the day, then obviously it means you get more adept faster, perhaps. Um, so I've been there and done that long, long hours, long working culture. The thing that I learned at my last company was that actually by doing all of that and doing those long hours, I was actually writing really awful code. Um, so I'd go off and I'd go off in my own little spin by myself and I'd bash something out and then come back to the office and then three other people would have to debug it and fix it and then there'd be long-term problems down the line because I hadn't checked something out or had a conversation with someone or you know but going off on your own it's kind of work heroes Um, and it sounds good that you have a work hero around but actually that that kind of puts this 
weird spin on your organization because you end up with a situation where there are people who have families or people who are sane in the room who want to leave it you know, given the contract that they have, they want to leave at a certain time. And then you have the work hero around, and by implication, you're yes, working harder. Yeah. These guys are slackers. What a bunch of losers, you know. Yeah. And they're thinking, damn, there's this work hero around. I hate it. I keep having to clear up his mess when he comes in. And you end up with this animosity between people uh, potentially merging. We didn't see that too much at the company I was at, but I've certainly seen that in other companies. Um, you know, it's, we had a really great team. We're like, you know, a solid group of people who worked really hard together. But I did see some of that emerging. And it was mainly through looking at my own behavior that I realized that um, it probably wasn't really helping me doing much m- much work after six. You can maybe have a different mode where you do reading or you write. So I've started writing recently as my I'm doing some work because I'm always on, always thinking. Right. So I write about the process. And like I've been blogging. Writing on, so I've, I just started writing on Medium. So that is that's kind of blogging, but it's I think it's subtly different. But that's a whole other uh, conversation. Uh, um, I don't know what they, I don't know what Medium is yet. I'm still trying to work it out. It's okay. started by the Twitter guys, right? Yeah, it's by F. Um, and it's, uh, it's kind of cl- collaborative collecting and blogging and writing and thought sharing. It's a long, different long mode. Copy. So you yeah. work in the evenings, but you try to shift, shift gears a bit. Try to shift mode a bit, do some research project. or maybe do some sketching. Um, I, I do like tinkering, so that's, I, I, I enjoy tinkering. Um, but tinkering is a different mode. So whereas um, when I'm working on something that's going to end up as something that other people will use, I'll mm. work it, do it in a certain way. But tinkering... I'll just have something over here that's on one side and I'll be making it, but that probably won't end up being part of a product that I'm working on. Okay. And by separating those modes off, it's more like play. You're kind of, oh, I'm just, you know, tinkering in the tool shed. Right, right. Uh, so different kind of play. Bryce, how do you deal with that? You're working a lot. Yeah, I think I'm already late for an event now. <laughs> they can wait. They can wait. They, they can, can all wait. I, um, uh... Yeah, I mean, this is an interesting conversation because I have, I have this, I have the beards, I have Albion Drive, the agency. Um, I'm out a lot. I'm quite publicly available and then I tend to... Uh, I'm quite easy to find, I guess. Um, and I think that, in a large part, has contributed to being able to do it. But I think, I mean, lately it's been a little bit more like I get to the weekend and I kind of shut down and I'm like, I don't want to look at Twitter and I don't want to be on... I don't want e- emails or I don't refuse to sort of... I draw a bit of a line because I found, I found, at least in you know my professional career, is if something is an emergency, people will find you. Like right. They will contact you, right? But if you start answering every email after hours on weekends, people will set that as the standard and you never lose it. And you're always doing that nervous thing where we're having a chat, blah, 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 and you're kind of like, yeah, hey, Brian, Nothing anyway. Than that. Phone goes up. Present. Phone goes back. You know what I mean? And, and, and it's so it's common a, it's now. It's like Tim Ferriss trick. He called the information diet, which was he never checked his emails before noon, and he trained people to know if it was an emergency to call. And if it's not an emergency, then it's not a phone call. And so then they would send the email, which he would check one a day. Yeah. So he had a certain business where he could do that. But yeah, I think well, you I, need to do that. If you don't draw the line, the line will be drawn for you. Exactly. Because you'll have about, too much or you just yeah. won't enjoy what you're doing Work anymore. is like a gas. It just grows to fill the available space. So if you make <laughs> yourself available for it, it's just going to be there all yeah, the exactly. time. And uh, the, the big thing it, for me is uh, my family. You know, uh, people do find it odd that I'm doing this kind of hyper-hacking, rapid-making 
uh, company because yeah. they assume that you have to have an unsustainable work ethic where you are constantly on and always trying stuff out and trying to max out and be really bro about it. And actually, we're trying to have a really sustainable company because we could totally overload. I mean, that's a real risk. Yeah. Because we have several things going on at any one time, yeah. there's always something to be done all the time. Yet all, there is also something else to be done, and that is going home. Yeah. Um, like that yeah. is important. You have to be able to go home. And coming in and fresh the next day. Put excited. your kids to bed and you know, wake up in the morning thinking about the, what you're going to do. And I think you know, a, a lot of writers, they give themselves 500 words a day. They say, I'm going to put in 500 words today. And that means for the rest of the year, they're just going to be doing 500 words. Now, they're probably four pages ahead in their head, but they don't allow themselves the, the next 500 words because mm. that will screw up the next, the next few days afterwards. And so they keep the rhythm going. And having this rhythm of making, I think, is a healthy thing to try and go for. So I do mm. see startups around here, you know, say, oh, you know, I've pulled another 2 a.m. thing. And I, I, I'm not sure that that's... That, Wise, I can see why people do it because they're frightened of the, uh, you know, the, the money's going to run out, or you know, we've got to get this feature out the door. Um, but maybe there's another way of looking at it. Maybe you need to be simpler. Maybe you just need to cut features, um, right. simplify your product. You see the stuff that we put out, and it, often people look at it and go, well, "It does one thing," and well, the response to that is, "It does one thing reasonably well." Um, uh, you know, it doesn't have to do all things. It just has to do one thing. And then if it's any good, then, yeah, sure, we can add that stuff later. Mm. Um, and I think that floats back into your life, that you, you try to just give yourself a little bit of a time constraint so that you're not killing yourself. And then you'll always feel good about what it is that you're doing. Bryce is like, I wonder what that's like. <laughs> but suffice well, it to say you haven't figured this work-life balance well, out. Well, you know, it's funny. It's weird timing, actually, because I've, I've, um, I've just started a, uh, a month off the booze. Okay. Yeah, I saw started. you sipping the Coca-Cola. I was. I was. Okay. Scary, right? Um, Not really. And I started... Uh, I've got a, a friend, um, Andrew McDonough, who runs a sort of a sports social network called Tribe Sports. Lovely guy. And he's... Yeah, we're kind of getting up and trying to do a bit of a jog in the morning so that I can kind of be tired by the time I get home at night and, you know, like, actually sleep instead of being, like, always on and going to an event and then coming home being like, I need to send 10 emails, I need to do these things. Because the thing is, like, it's always going to be there, you know, like that, like, like you said, it's never going to go away. But I think my philosophy now is that like at this point in my life, it's, it's about kind of pulling back a bit, you know, like when you're, when you're kind of at the beginning of your career, you have to go for everything. I mean, you know, I had to move halfway around the world, to the other side of the planet and you know one and had to start all over again, right. building everything from nothing. And you were right? willing to, cause you're young and that's what young guys do. Could I do it again? Stuff. No. I don't know. I don't know if I could. But your work will be more productive with that physical training and with this whole thing. I, I really yeah. think. And getting excited in the morning to do something that you haven't been doing till midnight the night before, there's something. There's something there. I just shut off. When I leave here at 8.30 or 9, I don't check emails or Twitter or anything at home. I just force myself not to look at it yeah. unless it's a total emergency. And yeah. then I, I wait till the next day. And I'm kind of excited to come in and be like, all right, what do we have to do? There are different modes. I, yeah, I, there are different ways. I'm always, um, I'm always on Twitter. Like... I, I, that seems to be more like a conversation. It's yeah. like a vast conversation that's always going on. Um, whereas email, I'm absolutely awful at it. Seriously, I, I'm terrible. You, people email me, and, if, and I, I think that if I, I should probably do a hack looking at my own email use to see what really happens. So I suspect if you get, if you get an email within uh, like 10 minutes or half an hour, you'll get a reply. But possibly, if you don't, then the, 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 the chances just extend very rapidly that I won't actually get around to replying because mm -hmm. I'm too busy yeah. doing, this, doing this stuff, not kind of writing emails about the stuff. 
uh, if that makes any sense. Yeah, it does. So I, I do come across as quite rude on email, I think. Yeah, well, um, this is actually And that's a thing. real danger. I don't, I don't like that. Well, that's the thing that Tim Ferriss said when he was here. He has an application that runs and it just it doesn't allow him to access the web or anything, or even his email for like a certain period of time. Because he said an email is someone else's agenda for your time. Yeah. Always. It's always someone who wants you to, now it's time for you to look at this. And as opposed to something you have to get done today, you have to create something. And so I've been trying now not to look at mine until noon and just get my projects done, but it's really hard. I got three inboxes that are constantly like overflowing. Mm. All right. I I have to ask our final question to Steph and then uh, hopefully wrap this thing up. And this is a question we ask everyone that's been here and we ask everyone on London Real as well. And this is it. If you, Steph, the hacker, could make a phone call to the 20-year-old Steph and give him a bit of advice, and it can't be to buy Apple stock or something crazy like that, but a bit of advice to that young man, what would you tell him? Quit earlier. Definitely. Okay. The, I think the biggest mistakes I've made are uh, not factoring in opportunity cost in my decisions and to, and following through on things just because of the sunk cost I already had in the thing that I'm doing. So I've already invested five years in this. I've got to keep going. Uh, wasn't a good idea. And sadly, I surrounded myself by, by with other people who were like, Steph, you've already invested five years in this idea. Keep going, keep going. And actually, uh, learning to quit and fail a bit earlier would have been... Well, it would have been different. I'm not sure um, if... Well, who can say what would have happened? Right. Uh, but definitely I would have stopped things a lot earlier that weren't working out. And learning that one earlier on, I think, is helpful for anyone. So to have a few things that don't work out, uh, rather than just constantly having everything work for you, um, is probably good. Because if you're not, uh, if you're not breaking stuff, uh, if, you're not, um, if you're not making enough mistakes, then you're probably not going fast enough. Yeah, I've heard that one before. Mm. Um, that's interesting. We never heard that one before. You know, winners never quit. Quitters never win. It's the opposite. <laughs> um, okay, that's good. On that same, uh, you know, on that same t- type of uh, thought process, what's the best advice you've ever been given? Best advice is one that I ignored, um, and I um, I spoke to the guy who g- gave me this advice the other day. Actually, it was very funny because we were at a meeting of uh, companies um, that have a similar model, and uh, I won't give his name because that would be unfair. But he um, he told me, uh, Steph, you'd listen to all of my ideas. I'd, l- I'd given him loads of different pitches for startups I want to do, and it was brilliant. And oh, I've got this idea and this idea and this idea, and this was uh, several years ago. And he just said, Steph. Can I give you some advice? Just do one thing. <laughs> and of course, I've totally ignored him. <laughs> <laughs> Just do one thing. That's pretty good. All right, and the last bit of advice is um, to that, you know, to that 20-year-old that's listening to this podcast or watching it somewhere around the world, what, what advice do you give them if they want to you know, be like Steph one day, you know, if they want to get into the business or be in a company like yours, you know, makeshift that sounds really fun and creative? Yeah, what do you tell them? Tinker. Uh, getting good at tinkering is something that no one really tells you to do, um, and uh, all of the stuff that has been useful for me over the last few years, the, the only reason I'm doing what I'm doing now is because I was tinkering around in my spare time. How would you define tinker? Um, taking a short-term, um, highly focused interest in something that's reasonably esoteric uh, and going, that's interesting, I wonder what it would happen if... Uh, and mm, actually that could be changed so you can do this, this and this and just playing with it a bit until you've explored it and the thing is that um, people often ask me another question and that's what's the best question you should ask in an interview 
So if you're hiring someone to be on your team yeah. and you look at the people in the room that we've hired at Makeshift and all of, the, all of those people have answered this one really well and it's what are you doing in your spare time? And I've spoken to a few people about this and the, the what are you doing in your spare time is this amazing filter because that's, that's the filter on are you, do you really care about this? Are you really thinking about what you're doing? Are you really introspecting? Or are you experimenting? Are you trying stuff out? Because all of that will flow through into your day-to-day work if you're really interested in something. And if you say in, in your spare time, it's like, well, don't really, I don't know, go to the cinema and, okay. I don't know, just do some sport. You, you know, want to hear a tinker. Like, I want to hear somebody say, uh, I'm making uh, some kind of 3D model printing experiment that's based on my walking data or something. I don't know. Like, just something really weird. Okay. Uh, I don't really m- mind what it is, but the, uh, I think that there's definitely something about just allowing yourself to experiment and tinker. And I wasn't always that way, so I think it's something you can learn. And certainly if you were to go into the kind of thing that I am doing and there's other people around in this area, the, the, the way they're working, um, that kind of instinct for experimentation is probably highly valuable and will continue to be highly valuable in the future. Good mm. stuff. I don't know if I'm going to get a job at makeshift anytime soon. <laughs> I don't know if I tinker in my spare time, but I'm going to think about that. Um, that's great stuff. That was one of the best answers we've had. Bryce, what am I missing? Or what's going on with you? What's, you know, what, what, I, I think to finish this up. No, I, I think this has been really good. I've really enjoyed this, actually. I mean, I was always, I've always been quite curious about makeshifts. Why I've been saying to get Steph on. I just think the concept is interesting and the people there are interesting. But of course, like many people, even I had no idea at the extent of what they do, which is kind of part of the magic, I think, is like we're always working on something. Um, so it's been really good. And uh, I did want to ask you about your... Um, Hacker in residence in the Isle of Egg in Scotland, which I thought was, but I, I don't know if we're going to have time for that. But um, that he basically got seconded to a tiny island off the Scottish coast, really, to be hacker in residence. The um, Isle of Egg. It's a beautiful place. Really, you have to go there. Only it Scotland takes you thirty-six have. hours to get there from London. Okay. From London yeah. to Scotland, which is a four-hour train ride. Yeah. What is and it, a boat or something? You've got to wait for the boat, you've got to stay oh, in a hotel. Okay. It's like going on a little adventure. And by the time you, you get there, because you've spent 36 hours traveling, you're in a different frame of mind. Okay. And then you arrive on this beautiful island uh, with these amazingly friendly people, uh, all who kind of live out there uh, in this just this really interesting uh, community where those guys are hackers. They're, they're amazing. The, there's about 90 people who live on this island. And um, uh, can I give you an amazing story? This, yeah, this quick. is brilliant. This place. <laughs> uh, they, um, the island used to be owned by a laird, a Scottish lord. Okay. Um, and uh, one day, because he didn't have an heir, he decided to sell his lairdship. And this internationally renowned artist, who's world famous in the world of fine art, bought it and became the new laird. The trouble was, he wasn't actually an internationally renowned artist, uh, he was actually just a scammer, uh, and there was no money. And so they were all faced with the um, prospect of being evicted. And so this was in the 80s. And uh, they did what would now be called a Kickstarter. And they kickstarted their own island. Um, and they uh, did a newspaper campaign. And people all around the country sent in little packets, uh, little envelopes of money. And they raised, like, whatever it was, a, f- a few million pounds to buy the island for themselves. And so this little community bought out the island. And then now they have their own power grid with all like f- world's only fully renewable, like triple-sourced power grid. Okay. They run it themselves. They have their own internet uh, connectivity that they've set up themselves. It's like this um, 
kind of v like view of the future of how communities could operate. So people travel from all over the world to go to visit this island. And I was lucky enough to go there and be a hacker in residence um, for some time last year to help them think about technology and creativity. And um, the island is a place where you could go to do your project away from the buzz of the city, but with the, okay. the fat internet connection. It's, it's a brilliant place to work. The Isle of Egg. Yeah. And it's spelled, it's spelled E-I-G-G, right? It's slightly, mm. I suppose the Ameri American sort of audience won't get that. I didn't get the front. Yeah, I, I said Egg the first yeah. time I saw it, but it's Egg. Either that or you guys are just winding me up with that story. No, no, no. <laughs> That's awesome. I'm stoked I asked about that. I mean, I didn't know that. That's crazy. I just knew we went to an island off the coast of Scotland and sat there for like quite a while doing tech, creative technology things. Inspirational story, those guys. I mean, wow. kickstarting your own island. Yeah. That's, that's strong. All right, well, guys, we could probably talk for hours. This has okay. been fantastic <laughs> yeah. um, stuff. Uh, it's really exciting what you're doing. Thanks for coming on. If people want to get a hold of you, your uh, Twitter at Makeshift. I'm Steph on Twitter, S-T-E-F. At Steph at Twitter. S-T-E-F. I mean, and at Makeshift on Twitter. How long have you been on Twitter? Since they launched at South by Southwest, I was there on that day. It was that crazy day where it was all an SMS. Really? Yeah, it was brilliant. Very expensive on the SMS. <laughs> at stuff is a strong statement when yeah. that's your Twitter handle. At stuff. It's like at stuff. What? Okay. That's cool. All right. And uh, it, is that the best way to get a hold of you? Uh, websites or anything? Or uh, Makeshift.io okay. and I'm Steph.io. Um, so, uh, and, th and there's links to all the other stuff from there. Um, I'm writing on Medium. That's, uh, that's some of the stuff I've talked about with you guys just now. I've written kind of more at length on my Medium page. Okay. So um, have a read. Fantastic. Yeah. We'll Thanks do that. For having me. Okay, very good. Um, we'll be at the drink about on Friday. The this, it, the keeps continues. The beers can keep continue, right? Uh, the, the beards are getting beardier. Yes, it's when's, getting bigger. When's the two the fat event? Monday night. Okay. Rohan Silver, David Cameron's former special advisor on technology and policy. Okay, and then go to three beers to get tickets for that. Uh, yep, yeah, uh, or chewthefat.io. Okay. That's hot now. Okay, awesome. If you're listening to us on iTunes, you can see all of our lovely faces. Bryce is looking very good today. Um, not that you're Stop. normally not, you know. He's dressed for I'm success. Watching. Yeah, and uh, that's uh, channel uh, Silicon Reel. We're also on London Reel TV as well. Um, we're on Twitter at Silicon Reel. Yep. And you can uh, send us an email, whatever. If you want to get involved, please do. This is episode 11. It's fun as hell. We're going to keep doing this. Bryce, thanks for all your help. Steph, thanks My for pleasure. being here. I hope uh, I meet you out in the future and, and hear some more stories about thanks what you're doing. Thanks for having me. That was, uh, it was a great conversation, guys. Cheers. Okay, awesome. Till then, it's about the people. Guys, take care. Take care. All right. See you. Peace. Language translation company completely went bust. Most of that team today powers Google Translate. Rockstar guys. And the comp that company had a complete, it was a terrible trajectory. The, you know, lots of mistakes inside the company, starting in Japan versus in the US. You know, you know founder was a little nuts and kind of quirky. You know, but, and you know, lots of scars there, but the people were exceptionally talented and they've all ended up in good spots. And, and so that was a failure for him. Second business that he went to was he joined a team.